BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Fondlessness, fondlessness, fondlessness. Having fondlessness, having fondlessness, having fondlessness with Jen Kirkman. Having Funlessness with Jen Kirkman, episode 339. What is this podcast? I'm a comedian, Jen Kirkman. You may know my Netflix specials. I'm going to die alone and I feel fine and just keep living. I'm also an author of two books. I can barely take care of myself and I know what I'm doing in other lives, I tell myself. This podcast is a conversation. And yeah, I talk about what's going on in my life, in my head, sometimes in the world, every week. Sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's earnest. It's where a comedian goes to just be yourself. If you're looking for hard and fast punchlines, you may find them in my specials. You'll get some laughs here, but settle in for a one-sided conversation. Now, let's address some business up top. Um, Some business of 2020 and touring And I used to announce my dates at the top of the show. Well, that's changing a little bit. Beginning with, I was supposed to be in Spokane, Washington this weekend at the Spokane Comedy Club. I am not due to COVID-19. It will be rescheduled for next March, 2021. Dallas, July at Hyenas, currently being rescheduled for Valentine's Day weekend, 2021. If you had tickets, the club should have reached out to you at about transferring or canceling. Caroline's Comedy Club, New York City, canceled. They will not be open this year. We are looking to reschedule for 2021. Winnipeg, they have canceled that. That was supposed to be August 8th. I will be back there in March 2021. Buffalo, New York. I was supposed to be there in September. I will be now there in March Bloomington, Indiana, we are looking into rescheduling. That will no longer be happening in September. 
Seattle, November, I will no longer be coming. We are going to reschedule that for 2021. Right now, Phoenix and Portland, Oregon for November are still in the books because those will be easier to reschedule should I have to cancel. If we see a vaccine in the fall, those shows could happen in November. But I'm not sure yet. We'll reconvene on those dates in a couple months. But as for now, no more shows in 2021. Everything at the Hollywood Improv canceled. I'm a little sad about it, actually. Finally. Finally, after three months of quarantine, I'm like, oh. Yeah, this sucks a little. But we're here. We've got the podcast, which I love doing as much as I love doing stand-up. So there you go. The great Julie London covering a great song that many people have done. Anyway, on the podcast this week, what are we going to talk about? Oh my God, so many things. We have crazy listener email stories. I have... um, like a fun little thing to talk about regarding online dating and what they recommend you guys do who are doing such a thing, what kind of questions to ask each other. But before we get into all of that, you know, last week's episode was recorded before the protest started in America. And I thought I would just talk about my experience with all, with, um, I hate when people say with everything going on and with all of this, but I just thought I would talk about my experience. I've been thinking that this feels different to me than all of the other times there have been protests or any other time the, the, the tension of racism in America has bubbled up and over this to me, uh, for my experience with it feels different. And I've been thinking all week of what to say about it. There is sort of obviously like any public figure, like pressure to address it, but I don't feel pressure. That's not why I'm talking about it. Um, But that can lead people to reactionary posts and memes and saying things that are just so white sounding. (laughs) And um, so I've just led, let my heart lead the way because I felt heartbroken all week, really, really heartbroken in a way that I hadn't felt about something that isn't directly my everyday experience. Um, I don't know, in a long time, ever? I I don't know. And I'm going through changes as, as all of us might be. And I'm not going to have the perfect thing to say in a, a week later, which is right now, as of this recording, which is Saturday, June 6th. I, I, I'm a work in progress. There's no urgency. I don't lead this country. So, so that's good, at least. And, you know, I, I, over the past two weeks, I've had thoughts of what to talk about and things to read. And, and, and I'll do a little reading of some things, but... I can never go wrong because this podcast is talking about me, what's going on in my head, if I just lead with my experience. And that way, I'm not preaching at anybody. And you can listen to my experience. And for all of its 
good or bad. This is my experience. So it's hard to do this podcast in a sense because I want it to feel like, hey, you're just chatting with a friend at the bar, except for the part where you don't get to say anything, but you know what I mean. And, but you know, if you go chat with your friend at the bar and then you meet up with them a week later, I've had some thoughts that have changed, but nobody remembers what you said at the bar because it's just out in the ether. But for me, it's recorded. And so I get embarrassed. I want to get it right. But no one needs me to get it right. As long as I get it from my truth and from, listen, there's going to be people who hear this or who read something I say and they'll misconstrue it and they'll be angry at me. And I just have to let that go. But I did write down some thoughts. And... So here's the deal. I'll say, when this first started, by this, I mean this current, you know, people seeking justice for the the police that murdered George Floyd and people seeking justice um, for the father and son. Um, I mean, not not justice like in a, oh God, you know what I'm saying. Um, So, My point is, if people were posting, it was a lot of white performance online. And it it came from a good place. I don't think anyone's trying to mislead anyone and go, I'll post this, and then I'll go to Sephora and never think about it again. But but I just couldn't take it anymore. My heart was broken to a place where I felt like people are in pain, and I don't know what to say yet, and that's okay. And I, I... I don't want to just post a meme like everyone else. And I don't know why I'm, why do I have to be so special and not do it? And maybe people are hurting and they'd like to see that I'm an ally. I certainly know that that's happened to me as a woman online. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But I just was like, no, no. And I did my friend's uh, podcast. It hasn't come out yet a couple of weeks ago. And he and I were talking again, this was before the, the protest started. And I said, I, I don't want to do this performative thing on social media because I know as a woman what it felt like when guys would do it and then they just forget about us. And I don't know. I just don't want to do it. And my friend and I talked about it and he was like, I know I'd rather just like take all my money and do this for someone or do that. But it was just two comedians kind of the way that you would at a bar just talking about like what this felt like. And things have changed so drastically since we recorded the episode. And I was a little nervous and and I'm no longer nervous, but I was nervous for it to come out again. It's not out yet that like, I'm going to be canceled because I was like, I'm not participating in this, but that's not what I meant. I meant not publicly, but it was because at that time it wasn't right for me to do it yet because I didn't know what my angle was. Um, And I don't mean that in a branding marketing way, like what's my take on racism? Buy a hat. That's not what I meant, but I just wanted to, I don't know. I just felt gross. I just felt bad. So I just let myself listen to things and hear things and learn things and see what came up for me as the thing that I need to go work on now. And for me, it's this unknown thing that I've always had, which is my deep feelings about white supremacy and about race. 
in <laughs> that's it i'm being canceled <laughs> white people on the internet don't think i address this well enough um that's just a package anyway so oh god forget what i was saying god damn it oh is that in my feelings about it that i'm uncomfortable about you know everyone can easily say i have white privilege and and I, my lord do i have to go into white, white, white privileges it doesn't mean that you got all of your dreams come true because you're white there's class issues there's the, of course it just means the simple fact that you're probably not going to be judged on the color of your skin by people who could hurt you that have weapons like the cops or an apartment manager that's you know, whatever it is. You might get judged for other reasons, but, but that's not what we're talking about. So I loved what someone said something uh, online that when people yell, all lives matter to black lives matter, it's like if someone's house was on fire and the fire department was putting the fire out and all the other families on the block were screaming, all houses matter, hose mine down right now. It's like, well, this one's on fire right now. But um, but I don't even want to get into that because that's too much of a political angle in the head. I want to talk about the heart. My heart is broken and always has been about this kind of thing. And I, I guess my attitude that I didn't know, it kind of came from my subconscious to my front conscience. And it's different than the way I feel about um, race, um, religious intolerance or inequality or even sexism in a way it it's different there's an, uh, the thing that I won't look at and it's the the pain that I do feel about race issues in this country and slavery and white supremacy and white privilege I it breaks my heart and I don't want to look at you know I can easily go I have white privilege I know haha <laughs> okay well I acknowledge it bye but it's one of those things where deep down I'm like yeah but I don't want the white privilege I wouldn't even know how to you know, on the next level of working it, like, I don't know what to do with it. You, you know, it's like, I, I don't even want it. So I don't want to talk about it. And, and so when I'm keeping it all in my head like that, I'm uncomfortable. You know, when I'm in discussions with, you know, it, whether it's black coworkers that I don't know very well, but we're all in a writer's room together or black friends, it's like there's this intellectual understanding and um, allyship. But the whole time I'm feeling awful. And I don't mean it like, oh God, I'm not being the white person. That's like, pity me, I feel guilty. It's not that. I just, I really do share, not equally, of course, but I, I have a broken heart about it and I'm just uncomfortable. I don't know what is okay to say. And I hate that. I want to know everything. I want to be perfect. And how I came to learn about it was from listening to this podcast that I love called 10% Happier, hosted by Dan Harris, who's white, he's an ABC News anchor. He had panic attacks his whole life, certainly was not a spiritual person, very skeptical about meditation, wrote a great book about it called 10% Happier, um, something, something from a fidgety skeptic about becoming a meditator. And now he has a podcast about it and he interviews all your favorite big time meditation and Buddhist and whatnot people. And 
He interviewed a man the other day named Lama Rod Owens, who is a black gay Buddhist, um, Buddhist. And uh, he talked about that what white supremacy does, and again, anyone listening defensively, no one's calling you a white supremacist, but born into a system, into a world of of white supremacy, uh, it keeps us in our head. And the people that are actually in pain, the the, the black people, um, born, I loved he called it like born without consent into the system, are experiencing emotional pain and trauma. And when they express it, we're like, oh, I'm just curious. So I'm going to play a little clip because it really made me go, yes, this is how I feel. This is how I feel. I'm, I'm uncomfortable because I've been staying in my head about this stuff, not in my heart. You know, and what's interesting is as a woman on the feminism tip, <laughs> that's my new book, by the way, the feminism tip, um, is when I would talk about feminism. Now, Twitter is totally different now than it was six years ago when I was screaming I was just watching my guy friends online, like your Pattons and your Kamales, and they were always about, you know, it, it seemed like all the guys that were like into nerdy stuff, like they'd always speak up about like race stuff online or gay rights or whatever, but they'd be like joking about their Harry Potters and their Star Wars and all that. I don't mean to name those two. I'm just like trying to name friends of mine that are otherwise very woke, cool people. And then I'd be like, hey, guys in comedy, like women are being harassed online and they wouldn't take it seriously. They wouldn't take it as a byproduct of like a system like sexism, but the way they seem to understand it about race or gay rights or whatever. And I started this website called MAM, like Men Against Assholes and Misogynists. And like, I couldn't get any guys to write an essay for it. And the ones that did were like, Jen asked me to come here and defend her against haters online. And I was like, no, that's not what I was doing at all. I was asking you to write an essay from your experience about your thoughts on misogyny and no one was in touch with their feelings, but now I didn't know how to articulate it yet. And so anytime I would write like, Oh, I got street harassed today. It was like, guys really didn't know because it wasn't happening to them that we deal with this every day. We live with the pain of the patriarchy that maybe guys out there are like, I don't want to be part of that. I got my own problems. We're like, no, I know, but you're still part of it. Um, so we've got to talk about it. We've got to heal. And and I didn't know how to have that conversation because I didn't even think about it from that way. I just knew, I was just always so frustrated. If I would talk from a really real place in my emotions and my feelings, guys would have one or two reactions. I'm just curious. Why do you think this happens? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not here to analyze it. I'm telling you there's a thing going on that we are experiencing and we're hurting here. And it fucks up everything about our life. And then, but not all men. Yeah, no, I know. Not all men. You don't have to tell women that. We know, especially the straight ones, because we're constantly trying to wrestle with the fact that we are attracted to and in love with people that benefit from a system that fucks us or fucked us. And that there's still inner communication issues between men and women because of it. Got to talk about it. It's very hard for me to like fall in love with a guy that doesn't understand that. And most don't. And, and the, or guys are, I'm ashamed of my gender. That doesn't help. 
I tried to get Twitter to black out for one day years and years ago where like no women would be on Twitter and it would just be men and they would have to talk about their feelings about misogyny and they wouldn't do it. And then it was like, yes, all women happened and that woman got death threats and then, you know, me too. And it's, it's definitely different now. I don't get harassed anymore if I talk about feminism. Maybe a drib and a drab here, but the guys will jump in. They never used to jump in. And it was always so important to me, like, I don't even give a fuck if it's, you know, rudimentary, elementary male understanding of it. Just fucking post something about it. Please don't just retweet, post, please. And so now I felt like, oh God, am I doing that as a white person? And and I knew that, like I was conscious of that day one where I was like, I know it's important to show that you're an ally and that you're not checked out, but then it can get performative, like you know, and so it's like, for me, it's like withholding right now. Like, do I need to be like watching the sunset with a glass of wine? Like, I don't. It's fine that I am. I'm also donating. I'm also reading. I'm also learning. I'm also whatever. Um, I have to say, I am not protesting. I am not, I am not leaving my place at all ever for anything because of my um, asthma. And I'm, I'm just too afraid of COVID and I'm sorry about that. But, you know, if people want to scream at me about that, like I've just come to such an acceptance that it's like, do whatever you want. Cancel me. I don't fucking care. Um, but you know, it's like, even the way we've softened things like slavery, it's like, it's not unpaid work. It was abuse. It was physical abuse. It was trauma. You know, oh, Thomas Jefferson had an affair with his slave. No, he didn't. That's rape. You know, and it's like the first step is just to say, I'm an ally. But you can't say it. I remember when men would tell me they were allies and I'd say, great. Now, do you ever just like have a drink with the guys and talk about sexism? And they were like, fuck you. It would always go to, I'm an ally. And then when I would prod a little bit, it would go, fuck you, bitch. Like, and it really makes me sad. And especially when people say not all men, it's like, do you realize that from my experience with what I've dealt with online, it is most, and the ones that aren't are busy still talking about what they're doing not to inspire others, but to tell me that they're different and that I don't want to do that. So I'm very aware of that. And I feel blessed in that way that I've had the experience of being an other so that I know some of the annoying things about it. Um, but the not all men thing is really hard for me because again, it's like, uh, just for me, I find it frustrating Uh, I don't even know what I'm saying. Okay, so I wanted to play you a little bit of this. Um, so I guess what I won't be talking about is telling you guys what to do. Donate here, do this. I have made a couple donations. I just, I'm just still learning what I want to say and what I don't. I'm still learning what's performative and what isn't. And if you look at my Twitter, I mean, it's very like retweeting and, you know, Hey, I liked this, but, um, I I had such a profound experience of like, I feel different now and I have to divest my privilege and I have to think about that. This is not something I'm going to figure out right now. Also, I'm a fucking, you know, It's like, I don't think anyone's looking to out-of-work comedians right now to, like, solve anything is, is I guess, my point. Um, 
People just need to hear that you're an ally who's trying. That's what I need to hear. And, you know, making sure to not ask the people that are suffering to do the emotional labor for me. What can I do to help? We can't do that. I'd get very frustrated when men would do that to me. Well, how do I learn about sexism? It's like, come on. That's not for me to do for you right now. That one was a hard one to get anyone to understand. Well, you, you say this and you want me to help. and then So, I mean, I, for the people out of the video version, I'm holding up all my notes. I had a lot to say, but that that's just what I want to say. And I'll play a little bit of this. This is what really moved me. And I'll read here. I'll just read this right now. Uh, this quote was going around by this writer Scott Woods uh it was interesting this this guy Scott Woods wrote an article years ago when Ani DeFranco the singer I didn't even know about this story or I don't remember it she was planning a wedding I remember that I remember the lesbian community was like what do you mean you're straight and she was planning a wedding and it was going to be at a plantation down south and people were like she's canceled she's racist and scott woods who's black wrote this longer piece about she's not racist that was just sort of a racist decision or i forget how he put it but anyway there was a paragraph from that article that is now recirculating and i think it's just an important thing to hear so i'm just going to read it in case you didn't see it um, there's two, well, the, the, the quote that's going around is racism is an insidious cultural disease. It is so insidious that it doesn't care if you are a white person who likes black people. It's still going to find a way to infect how you deal with people who don't look like you. Yes, racism looks like hate, but hate is just one manifestation. Privilege is another. Access is another. Ignorance is another. Apathy is another and so on. So while I agree with people who say no one is born racist, Oh my God. And I swear to God, you guys, I could not deal with one more fucking Nelson Mandela or MLK quote on a white person's account. Like I just can't right now. Okay. Anyway. Um, so while I agree with people who say no one is born racist, it remains a powerful system that we're immediately born into. It's like being born into air. You take it in as soon as you breathe. It's not a cold that you can get over. There is no anti-racist certification class. It's a set of socioeconomic traps and cultural values that are fired up every time we interact with the world. It is a thing you have to keep scooping out of the boat of your life to keep from drowning in it. I know it's hard work, but it's the price you pay for owning everything. And so I don't want to get political right now, but I guess the performative part of me wants to say that was what started to turn me away from Bernie Sanders years ago was listening to black people and understanding that he's not the deal. And, uh, and I don't want to hear anything about it. So, um, I wish I could just delete what I just said because I'm not going to be articulate about it. It doesn't matter. But I'm just telling you behind the scenes in my politics, I have been so aware of things people are just learning. And I'm not saying that to brag. Where my problem has been has been I have not checked in with my heart about it. And when I did, it's sort of, I'm still going through the process of how it's changing me. So allow me that, that that's where I am in the process. So I want to play you this thing I heard again on the 10% Happier podcast, episode 253, called An Uncomfortable But Meaningful Conversation. Um, 
This is Dan Harris speaking to Lama Rod Owens. And I'll just play maybe, I think it's maybe like five minutes. So here you can enjoy this. Um, this is this is the thing that I needed to hear this week that helped me realize like my angle of looking at things. And then after I played this clip, we will discuss, um, no, I don't know what I, if I want to talk about this other thing anymore. Not like in a bad way. Maybe I'll read some listener emails. We'll just hear from other people. That actually is a great idea. <laughs> and then I'm going to talk about um, this silly little dating thing from the New York Times. Okay, hang on. Oh, tits, what's happening? Hang on. Okay, okay, hang on. Okay. I've been in a lot of organizing, you know, and community work. And, and, and so when I look at the rise, I see people expressing their hurts, you know, within a system that actually cannot hold their hurts, their heartbreak, or their anger, you know. Um, so that's my experience, right, you know. But what is your experience of all of this? Your, what is your reaction to everything that I've just shared? Well, I'm still curious mm-hmm. about this notion that the racism that courts is often unseen, but definitely seen, mm-hmm. too, through our culture is causing white people pain that we don't want to reckon with that mm-hmm. makes everything worse. I, I want to interrogate that, but... In terms of what we're seeing on TV, just to clarify your question mm-hmm. about wh- how I'm reacting to it, are you are you asking how am I reacting to the scenes we're seeing on mm-hmm. TV mm-hmm. of civil unrest? Um, well, let me let me just actually clarify that more because there's something happening in the in the conversation now, you know, which is the ways in which the sharing from black folks becomes this intellectual thing that white folks want to analyze and get into, you know, and some of the words curious, interrogate, you know, those are, those can be really harmful words when someone has shared something that's really deep and personal, you know, and triggering, you know? So I, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate is, you know, I I love to hear how people are feeling Mm. when I'm, you know, after I've shared something, you know, and I love to check into how I'm feeling when someone else shares something that's really vulnerable, you know, so I guess the question now is not what you think, but how do you feel right now? Like, how do you feel? Uh, and it's so it's interesting they they go into a conversation where um they talk about in this very calm patient way in this very like buddhist meditator way too of okay when i talk about race and i don't feel heard my heart rate's going up but it's okay and it's like, okay, well, I'm getting flushed with shame. It's really beautiful. It's a wonderful conversation. And I think there's this notion that white people can't have feelings, whether it's guilt, shame, or sadness. And I think if we stay in our feelings, that will help us. I, I learned a lot from that. I don't know how else to articulate, but to tell you, if you want to understand more what I learned, you can go listen to that. Um, 
And yeah, I think it really crystallized for me when I would post from an experiential feelings place about women's issues and someone would write just curious. It felt like a ton of bricks on my head. Like, wow, it was so triggering and I never knew why until this. So, you know, I wanted to know, like, did anything I say affect your feelings? Like, what are you being just curious? Why are you asking me questions about data? Okay. So thank you, everybody, for allowing me to have a conversation with you. So let's see what you guys are saying to me. So we've covered a bunch of topics over the past few weeks with the listener emails. Um, Some people are emailing me. I, I remember a few weeks ago I talked about those weird phenomenons, like you drop a pencil and you see it fall to the floor and you go to pick it up and it's not there and you never find it. Or you drop something and 20 years later, it ends up like in a different state that you moved to. And you're like, how the fuck did this thing from my childhood get over here? You know, those weird ghost stories. And so a lot of you sent me your weird stories. And it's funny because they weren't small. They weren't like I dropped a pen and I don't know where it went. They were ghost and alien stories that (laughs) are pretty intense. So I don't know, maybe that could be fun. I'll read a couple of those. Um, Okay. We've got our Muzak for the listener email portion. Okay. Jen, five years ago, My son had an accident. He is fully recovered and has a heck of a story to tell. He was taken via ambulance to the ER. When I arrived at the ER, his dad was already there as well as my BFF. I am told upon arrival, the atmosphere in the room changed. My son said he saw my deceased father drape his arms around me as I cried from the severity of the injury and the fear of the unknown. I don't recall much from that time in the ER as I assume I was in auto mom mode, but my BFF also noticed a change in the room. She could only describe it as a fresh breeze in a room with no windows or doors near the outdoors. Fast forward one year, me and my son were at a Catholic youth conference attending adoration. I don't know what that is, and I guess I wasn't that Catholic. Afterwards, my son expressed he saw my father walking behind the priest as he processed processed through the gym, conducting adoration. Another student in attendance also saw the same figure. Beth, by the way, your Patreon has been getting me through a tough time. I was hired at a hospital in the Bay Area as the pandemic began, and it's been stressful as you can imagine. Oh, thank you, Beth. Whew, I know, and I don't know where the fuck California is opening up, and there's people sitting, this is what makes me crazy, like, what are you doing at a cafe, you dumb fucks? We never barely flatten the curve. Stay home. Stay home, stay home, stay home. There's going to be another round of this. Mark my goddamn words in September, you'll be sheltering in place again. Or worse, you'll be sick. Ugh. Everyone's lost their damn minds. Okay. Anyway. But see, that's a crazy ghost story. I don't know what to say about that. I love a ghost story. I'm one of those people that's like, I don't believe in ghosts and I believe every single ghost story I hear. I'm like, that's amazing. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, this is a weird story. Jen. Oh, this is something about quarantine. Jen, I was so excited to catch up on the podcast a few months ago after listening to all the old episodes. I waited the whole time to email you because I figured the email address would change whenever the name changed and sent an email, and then you said you don't really check it, which made me laugh. Anyway, you asked about what people have been up to in quarantine. I'm in Spain, and we weren't allowed to exercise for the first seven weeks. Oh, allowed out. I was like, were they coming by? Like, I hope no one's jumping up and down in there. Uh, we weren't allowed out. My work closed, so I only went out once a week to get groceries. I structured my days pretty strictly so that I wouldn't just watch Netflix, read, read the news, panic about money, and get depressed. I did things like working out, walking hundreds of laps in my small apartment, playing piano, learning Italian and Tai Chi, reading, trying out new recipes, eating meals without distractions. But the best thing was therapy, as it often is. I was already doing it online, and having this free time allowed me to have things just come up between sessions more than usual. So I ended up really dealing with some stuff. Oh my God, the same thing happened to me. I have been fucking like, I just keep saying, if an alien was observing me from space, they'd say, okay, she walks from this room to that room, sometimes from that room to that room, or goes over here in that room. If she comes and goes sometimes, I think she takes a walk. I see her cooking over there a lot. Yeah, nothing really remarkable. But meanwhile, I'm like popcorn in my head. I was just a bunch of kernels before quarantine. And now it's like pop, 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 like reframing old stories I've told myself about myself and, and looking at things in a different way and changing. I'm changing so fast. It's unbelievable. And I'm actually able to put those changes to work because I don't have as many distractions. It's been wonderful for me in that way. For a few, anyway, she continues, for a few weeks, I was very deeply into that, uh, aka therapy, and it would have been a big shock to my system if the quarantine had ended then, I agree. After seven weeks, the first time I could go out for a walk, I went to the park by my apartment as soon as it was allowed, 6 a.m., and I was just overwhelmed. I cried for the first 20 minutes of my walk. Everything was so beautiful. I saw everything like it was the first time and noticed things that I'd never noticed there before. Since then, I've been going for walks every day, and the lockdown has been gradually lifting. But I'm getting restless because I still haven't gone back to work, and I feel like I'm ready now. It's been great to have time to do what I want and to get deeper into therapy, but now, after two and a half months, I realize that it's been monotonous. Not boring. I really enjoyed everything I chose to do each day, but monotonous. There have been very few surprises in my life since it shrunk to the size of my room. I'm an adult education teacher, so my job involves spending time with people, which is often surprising. I also wanted to comment on the subject of graduation. I'm from the UK, and graduation from school is not a thing. You finish, and then a couple months later, you go in to pick up exam results with no pomp and circumstance. Universities have graduation ceremonies, but we don't even use the word graduate for school. I've always thought it was weird and over the top. Looking back, I would have been sad to have missed out on the last few days of school with my friends, but nothing else. Anyhow, keep living, laughing, loving, and fucking the haters from a safe distance somehow, Jess. Thank you, Jess. I gotta get my ass to Spain. I've never been. Isn't that crazy? My friend Rachel Arieff, really funny comedian. She used to run this show on Hollywood Boulevard in the basement of the Holiday Inn. on No, on Vermont Avenue in Hollywood. <clears throat> it sounds depressing, but it was a cool performance space. And her comedy show ran forever. 
and then someone else took it over. But that was like right when I first moved to LA in like 2000. Well, it was like the first three years that I was here. So it was like 2003 maybe. And <clears throat> Rachel was really funny, such a kook. And she played piano and sang and did stand up and just a true original. And she met a guy from Spain and she was like, Y'all, I'm getting married. I'm moving to Spain. And we were like, that's crazy. And I'm like, that's the smartest thing I ever heard. She's loving her life. She's running some shows there. I can't believe I haven't just gone and been like, can I come to your open mic, Rachel? I'm not saying it's an open mic. I didn't mean it to like devalue it. But, you know, it's one of those shows that I could probably get stage time on. But um, I don't even want to go to Spain to do comedy. But get that out of your head. I literally don't really... I, I sort of miss performing. Like, I miss standing on a stage and... I don't know. I'm cool without it right now. But anyway, but... I want to go to Spain. And I shall. I will. I also want to go to Iceland. I also want to stay... I don't know. I want to go everywhere. I really want to move to Europe so I can just bop around at my leisure. It's so hard to just move for no reason. Like, you can't just go into a country. <laughs> this is the dumbest cover. My brain is so fried. Could someone hire me in Amsterdam for something? Thank you. Um, okay. I'm looking for this. I say it not in a pejorative way, but this crazy email from this guy that was telling a story about his dad. Uh, Hi, Jen. As the subject line suggested, I am also a gay Gen Xer who was also in the B-52s fan club and also had an out gay French teacher in high school. Oh, I guess I got a letter from a gay Gen Xer who was in a B-52s fan club. So there's two of you out there. He said, so you've definitely narrowed in on a very specific demo. Do you guys know each other? Unrelated, did I hear you say on an episode quite a while ago that a panic attack can be triggered by viewing the horizon? Am I crazy? Did I invent this? Recently, I had a panic attack triggered by approaching the horizon, and I thought, oh, yeah, Jen mentioned something about this. Or did she, Jamie? I did. Uh, I'm not saying scientifically it can be. I'm just saying for me, when I get them, I'm less likely to get one in an airplane looking out the window than I am if I've been driving for a couple of hours. Let's say I'm in Texas where it's all sky and there's nothing ahead of me on the road. I start to get that fight or flight feeling. And I always call it like my horizon panic attacks where it's just like I need my eyes. I think my eyes start doing some caveman thing. They zero in in this way as though there's danger and then my body starts reacting and I'm like, so sometimes I have to stop and it's hard because you want to stop so you can stop looking at the horizon, but then you just feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. Oh, it can be a really awful feeling. Whew. Um, okay. Here's the, in quotes, crazy email. Hi, Jen. I'm catching up on the most recent couple of having funlessness episodes. And in episode 336, you spoke a little bit about being fascinated by the unexplained. I have a little story that might be of interest. I haven't experienced this personally, but it is a family story that we've all been fascinated by. My great-grandmother on my mom's side lived a very fascinating life. She was a truck driver for the Army, 
met fascinating old Hollywood people like Frank Sinatra, and had a torrid love affair with a married country star named Ernest Tubb. Uh, Even more fascinating was her brother, who we all refer to as Uncle Larry. He lived most of his life in Southern California, served in the Army, and was allegedly part of the team that invented the bazooka. He was also married to a lovely woman by the name of Mary Wells, who was a direct descendant from Mr. Wells of Wells Fargo. Ooh, must be nice. Back in the early 1970s, Uncle Larry published a book called Passport to Eternity. It details his encounter with aliens from outer space in the California desert. It's a tough read and no longer in print, but interesting nonetheless. Uncle Larry claims that he felt as though he was being watched. It was a feeling he just couldn't shake, so he decided to pack up and head out to one of his favorite camping spots in the desert. While camping, he encountered a man called Bill. They cooked out together, swapped stories, and formed an almost instantaneous friendship. Bill headed back to his own campsite after dinner, but promised Uncle Larry that he would encounter something fascinating the next morning. Uncle Larry woke up the next morning to very heavy footsteps outside his tent and was shocked to find Bill driving an enormous robot of some sort. I kept picturing that thing Sigourney Weaver fought the queen with in Aliens. Bill explained to him that he comes from a different world. Uncle Larry was intrigued. And they made plans to meet again where Bill would show him even more fascinating things and information. No specific date was set, only that Uncle Larry would feel that being watched feeling again. At their next camping encounter, Bill introduced Uncle Larry to his group of alien friends and was taken to their spaceship. According to Uncle Larry, it looked like a giant tent. I can't remember exactly how he described the exterior and interior, just that it was larger on the inside than how it appeared from the exterior. Uncle Larry would meet with Bill and his buddies numerous times on their tent-like spaceship where they explained where they came from and that Earth is a prison planet. According to Bill, we humans are related to Bill's people, but we're born with some sort of veil over our brains from keeping us from knowing about what Bill's planet knows. Sounds a bit like what I've read about Scientology. He says later on he went to New Mexico and met even more of Bill's friends and saw their fleet of 21 spaceships. Uncle Larry went on to learn about how the universe works, according to Bill. He also learned about cancer, plant-based meats that taste like the real thing, and cigarettes that don't cause cancer. What? This is my planet. Vegetarian food and cigarettes that don't cause cancer. Moment of silence, please. Oh, that's all I want in life is a cigarette that don't cause cancer. I really need that. I love to smoke and I miss it. I quit and I'm not one of those people that says, how did I ever used to smoke? Oh, I know how I used to smoke it's the best thing that ever happened to me in my life i like the ritual of packing the pack i like to pull it out and see that the tobacco is a little centimeter back further and put my mouth on the thing and light with a lighter and then i hold the lighter in my hand the whole time i smoke the butt and it 
feels so good and comforting. I like the smell of smoke. I like feeling the little buzz in my brain. It's good for my ADD. I never felt more alive when I smoked except that it was killing me. And now I worry about more than cancer cause an older woman on the birth control pill that she takes for her hormonal acne <laughs> will have a stroke if those hormones and that cigarette shit is combined. Even the natural ones, it can make blood clots. <sighs> anyway, sorry. Woo. If you don't remember, I was talking about this email from a listener whose crazy Uncle Larry was hanging out with a guy named Bill claimed he was an alien. So let's rewind a little bit. Uncle Larry went on to learn how the universe works according to Bill. He also learned about cancer, plant-based meats that taste like the real thing, and cigarettes that don't cause cancer. Bill also gave Uncle Larry the gift of a cat that he named Susie. My mom remembers the cat and how different she seemed to be from other cats. Not sure what my mom means by that. He had a painting of Susie commissioned, which we still have. I was always fascinated by his story and had the opportunity to ask him a few questions about it when he was alive. The question I remember asking the most was whether or not I would ever be able to meet Bill. Uncle Larry assured me that I would. I'm still waiting. I just hope he doesn't beam himself into my room while I'm sleeping and lurk over my bed like aliens do in abduction stories. It's an odd story that has always been an entertaining discussion topic in our family. The book is no longer in print, but my mom inherited the original manuscript when Uncle Larry died in the late 1990s, and my great-grandmother passed away in the early 2000s. We've thought about reworking it a bit and having it published again, but that project remains on the back burner. I don't think I truly believe Uncle Larry met aliens from outer space. Could it all have been a series of very vivid dreams? Maybe this Bill character slipped some LSD into his coffee. It's fun to think about whatever it was. Loving the podcast and the videos on Patreon, the videos make it feel like I'm part of a conversation with a friend while I'm in quarantine. You rock, and I look forward to hopefully seeing you on tour sometime in the near future when it's safe to be around people again. Your number one fan, Josh. Well, thank you, Josh. You hear that, everyone who thinks they're a number one fan? Josh just threw down the fucking gauntlet. And let me remind you guys while we're here, I do have a Patreon. I'm opening up some new levels this week. They might be there by the time you hear this. But this is how I make my living right now. And it's really only a third of what my living normally is. So, you know, this is the best way to support me. I'm not doing any uh, Zoom shows right now. So uh, patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman. There are many levels to join at. $5 level, $10, $15, $20, $25, $30, 35 and 40 with each level, you get more and more bonus content. And in the higher levels, there is merchandise. So, there we go. And there. Patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman. I also release, including bonus episodes, I release some of my stand-up that I recorded on, on the road in the last three years. You know, anywhere from five minutes to entire hour sets. So... If you join, you get all the backlog of bonuses. And even at the $5 level, you get bonuses. You get a 20-minute bonus episode every month. You get to watch the video version of this. And in the video version, I talk for a little bit, for a couple minutes, 
before the beginning of every episode that no one else can see but the video people. And uh, some stand-up is released at the $5 level as well. So really something for every budget. If, in fact, you have a budget to do it at all. I'd appreciate the support. Patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman. As you've been hearing, uh, I usually would have two ads a week, but ads are falling away due to COVID. So support, support the one you love. All right. I have a theory about this Bill and Uncle Larry. Is Uncle Larry ever married? Did he never find the right woman? Oh, no, you said he was married to that. You said Uncle Larry was married to Mary Wells from Wells Fargo. Okay, I have a theory. Uncle Larry was gay. He was never going to come out. And he married a nice, rich girl just for the stability. Who wouldn't? But he was never in love with her. So you'd go on these camping trips. I mean, what is it? What, if Katika has a plot to Brokeback Mountain? Bill and him were having a gay affair on this camping. And I think when men do that, <laughs> they, they have to invent some crazy story about aliens. That's what we're doing. There's aliens. And I can't tell you anymore about the trips. And, and, and then they do it as a cover to people and, and in their own minds. It's like, I think they honestly believe that Bill was from another planet. But I think Bill was from planet gay. Speaking of a gay Bill. I am reading a fucking great book. And don't worry, I'm also reading important things. <laughs> Why do I have to do that? It's called Surviving James Dean by Bill Bast. It's, I paid like 25 bucks for this copy on Amazon, like out of print. So basically, Bill was James Dean's best friend. They met at UCLA. And James Dean dropped out of UCLA and within five years was famous and also dead. So they had quite a whirlwind five years of friendship. And right after James Dean died, Bill's a screenwriter, right after James Dean died, Bill wrote a biography about being his best friend. And really just a, for the record, this was the real James Dean. But very, 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 uh, what's the word? Like tame, not the real truth because it could never have come out back then. And then years later, Bill wrote the real book. I think, when did this come out? I don't know when this was published. Maybe the 1990s? And it's about their, oh, 2006. Uh, now that everyone and you know, anyone that it could harm in James Dean's life, uh, and, and why do I feel the need to say my next sentence? I knew James Dean was gay, but I knew he was bi at least. Uh, that was always the, the talk. And, uh, but Bill talks about their uh, love affair, which was non-sexual at first and then was, and then, then it's kind of ambiguous. I don't really know, but um, I'm, I, I love James Dean. I always have, not the Americana red jacket James Dean, but, I'm fascinated with his acting, his work ethic, the actor's studio. I love his movies. I don't have a crush on him. It's not like that. It's, I just always really, I was fascinated with him. And now that I know a little bit more about psychology, I'm like, oh God, like 
kind of like unresolved trauma, like dad didn't love him, mom died, like boo, these people can be uh, doozers. But he is, oh, why is this fucking fake music? So I'm sorry. <laughs> That's my reading emails music. Um, That must have been annoying. So, but it's actually just a heartbreaking tale of being gay back in the 50s when he knew that Jimmy was, Jimmy, that's what I call him. He knew that Jimmy was kind of hustling a little bit with some older men. Um, and even knowing that, he was afraid to tell, I mean, him and Jimmy shared a hotel room as like where they lived. When James Dean, all the other books I read, James Dean lived in the Iroquois Hotel in New York. Well, it never mentioned with a roommate, but a room, you know, like two twin beds, a room. So Bill was so in love with him and, and, uh, you know, Bill's mom came to visit and she stayed in one bed and then him and Jimmy slept in the same bed. And even that, like just holding each other in the middle of the night, he was still afraid to come out because he thought that James Dean might get violent towards him because he just was so afraid to come out. Like he couldn't even come out to like a, a gay person that was his friend that clearly was gay and also into him. Uh, and it's, and it's kind of this underground, just about like the underground Hollywood and New York scene. It's really cool. And I didn't know this, but James Dean got a letter from the government when he was in New York that was like, hello, you've been drafted for the Korean war. And back then you could get out of the war by saying you were gay, a practicing homosexual. So he wrote that he was, even though the way it's told in the book is that Jimmy was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just lying to say that. But it, I guess that never got exposed or the letter was never, it just never came out, um, so to speak. So anyway, it's not weird that you could just send a letter. I'm gay. Okay. Anyway, that's your book review for the day. Uh, and then he lived in the Valley like me. I always think of New York as James Dean. I never think about where he lived when he was in LA. I don't know why. And he lived six miles from where I live in a little like two room log cabin that he, he was renting from this guy, Nick, who owned the Villa Capri, which is a restaurant in Hollywood that all the greats went to, which doesn't exist anymore. But um, so I don't know, there's something kind of like getting me in my teenage heart again that like I live six miles from where James Dean lived, but uh, the place has been torn down and turned into a, a bigger house. Um, But there you go. Well, this episode's been all over the fucking place. So we'll just close up on this. I was reading this article in the New York Times. And I actually don't really like the New York Times that much. But, you know, uh, you know when you're scrolling through social media and something pops up and you click. Why am I explaining that? What is wrong with me? What is with the explaining? So it's an article uh, about first dates online. And I mean, I don't even know if anybody's doing that anymore who's doing online dating now that we can kind of go out again. I was like, should I do online dating and do like video dates with people? <laughs> like, 
no. Because mo- like everyone I know who's doing online dating, it's like after three video dates, they start to get antsy. And don't forget, you're dealing with straight men. And the straight men are like, let's just take a walk. I'm totally afraid of coronavirus. Then you go on the walk. Then it's like, let's get tested. I'm like, it's not AIDS where as long as you don't have sex with anyone else and you test negative, then you definitely don't have it. It's like, yeah, go get your corona test. Then go about your life where you seem to be interacting with lots of people. Now you have like, I don't know. And then, you know, it, it seems weird to me during a pandemic to go through all these hoops to make sure you're safe. Like I have a friend who's dating someone she just met in quarantine online. And they take masked walks and they really started to fall for each other. So they both got Corona tests and they're only seeing each other now. And now they're seeing each other in person, no masks. Like it's like they're declared safe to each other, but they're not seeing anyone else. And it's like, wait, so if you go through all these hoops to like see anyone in your life, it's for a brand new person. Like, I don't know. It's weird to me. I've stayed out of the game for a long time before I'm fine to be out of it now, but I just don't want to have to deal with like some antsy guy who's like, it's been three walks. And I'm like, yeah, until there's a vaccine, I can't touch you. And they're like, come on. You know how, (laughs) you know how guys are. Oh, they're just monsters. That's not what I meant. I just don't want to deal. Anyway, okay, but I liked this article because I thought, you know, these are fun questions that you could just ask yourself or I could talk about on the podcast as topics or you could talk to your current partner about or just friends having a conversation. I thought these are kind of fun questions like, okay, so if you're on your little online date, you know, you'd ask, breaking the rules, do you find it fun or frightening? Do you, re- do you read spoilers? Explain yourself. And I've talked about on this podcast, I need spoilers as an anxious person. If you could be famous, what would you be famous for and why? Oh, that's kind of a depressing question for me. <laughs> I'd be a famous comedian, <laughs> but I'm not. If you could change anything about yourself, what would it be and why? That one I actually don't know. I looked at that and I was like, I have no idea. Uh, not because like I'd change nothing, but who is your role model for love? And I was like, I don't know if you guys know this about me. My role models are Rachel Zoe and her husband, Roger. <laughs> they like run their business together. They've been together for 30 years. They're really fun. I like love their relationship so much. Um, what do you value most in a friendship? What's the post-COVID trip you want to take? What have you rebelled against in the past? And what are you rebelling against now? What's your perfect Sunday? What's the funniest advice your parents have ever given you? And then I had to stop on that one and go, I don't think my parents have ever given me advice. Read five texts you have sent that day. Um, And then someone who really knows me would know this about me. Give a tour of your fridge. Do a virtual show and tell of why an object means something to you. So I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. So maybe I'll talk about these questions another week, but I just wanted to introduce it. And I also want to say rest in peace to someone who died of COVID who he really was a good person on this earth, gone too soon. You guys may know him. He was brought into our lives, oh, six, seven, eight years ago. The double rainbow guy. He was the guy on YouTube who was looking at, it was 2010, 10 years ago. In January 2010, Paul Vasquez stepped out of his home 
to find two brilliant rainbows stacked on top of each other stretched across the mountainous horizon. The awesome sight moved him to tears. Naturally, he recorded it. He was whispering, oh my God, it's a full-on double rainbow all the way across the sky before letting out a full-bellied yell. He shared the soul-bearing clip on YouTube with little expectation. But within days, it had racked up millions of views, and today it's got 47 and counting. He became a minor celebrity because of it. He appeared on Jimmy Kimmel Live. He was in ads for Microsoft and Smartwater. And he even was in an in-flight safety video for Delta Airlines. I didn't know that. I never saw it. I'm the world's authority on rainbows, he told CNN in 2015. He thrived in the California wilderness. He moved from East Los Angeles, where he was born and worked as a firefighter, mad respect, and moved to Yosemite in 1985. He worked in a variety of roles at the National Park and later out of the park as a cage fighter and truck driver. He married, had children, and divorced. Finally, he settled at his humble perch on the side of a mountain in Mariposa, 10 miles from the edge of Yosemite, where he grew his own food and cultivated marijuana plants. When you live alone like this, he was definitely high in that video. When you live alone like this, you connect to nature on a deeper level, he told CNN nearly five years ago. When you can yell at the top of your lungs and no one cares or knows, it gives you a type of freedom that most people have no understanding of. Five years after the viral success of his double rainbow clip, he was just making $6,000 a year. In some respects, I feel really rich. I may not have a lot of dollars, but I have 100-mile views with complete privacy that hundreds of millions of people have seen. I've got it pretty good. He continued to document his daily life on YouTube up until his death. Making videos is fun and entertaining for me. He said, it's my art and it's my memories. He was open about his health troubles too. In November 2019, he said nerve damage in his legs made it increasingly difficult for him to walk. Um, in 2019, he shared that a tree fell on his beloved home. He moved into an apartment in March with the help of his ex-wife and two adult children. It wasn't as removed as his mountainside home in Ben, but he still had a view of the Sierra Nevada mountain range, although it was slightly now obscured. On the inside, he decorated his wall with a rainbow-colored tapestry to make it feel more like home. Um, and unfortunately, he had some pre-existing conditions, which made him a prime candidate to not survive the coronavirus. He died at age 57 uh, last month. Uh, his nickname was Bear. And so in honor of Bear, we're going to play something really joyful, which is the double rainbow video. And as I remember, my favorite part at the end is when he thinks it's a triple rainbow. I mean, he's obviously so high. It's so cute. Here we go. Whoa, that's a full rainbow all the way. Double rainbow. Oh, my God. It's a double rainbow all the way. Whoa, that's so intense. Whoa, man. Look at that. 
It's starting to even look like a triple rainbow. Oh my God, it's full on. Double rainbow all the way across the sky. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh God. What does this mean? bright and vivid. There's a minute left. He's so full of joy. There was a point when he's like, it's a triple rainbow, a double, triple rainbow. Maybe that clip cut it off. Anyway, I hope all of you can experience some kind of joy this week on that level. What a beautiful thing. If you watch the YouTube video, it is vivid, as he says. I hope you experience some kind of joy this week. If you want to keep listening to the rest of this episode, there will be a 20-minute bonus over on Patreon, patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman. I'll be talking about Elon Musk going to space. So there you go. That'll be available at the $10 and above level because it is the second 20-minute bonus episode of June. Patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman. Enjoy a double rainbow in your life, whatever that may be. And until next week, have fun.